Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome or welcome back for this second of our summer school theme talks for this year. As always, I'm welcoming you not just only on my own behalf, but on behalf of the summer school panel. In reverse alphabetical order of our postcodes, we are Nicola Temple, Michael Allard, Kate Brady McKenna and Jane Blackall. And you really are welcome. You are welcome no matter what. Wherever you're joining us from, however you're feeling, however settled you are in the space where you are, you are welcome here. Your presence in our midst and on our screens is important. These theme talks are a sacred offering from the speakers and they're offered here as acts of worship as well as talks. The overall theme of this week is right relationship, practicing love, peace and justice in everyday life. And each talk is around an hour and 15 minutes, giving the speakers more scope to go deeply into their topics than they might expect in a sermon. I will be introducing tonight's speakers shortly, but first there are some housekeeping notices. These are to help our time together run smoothly and to help in the creation of sacred space here online. I know that some of you will have heard them last night, but they help to create a sacred space and they are important. You'll have noticed that you are muted. We have found that it's very much easier for everyone to concentrate without the chat box distracting us down at the bottom. Individual speakers may turn the chat box on at some point during their talk. I don't think we're doing that tonight, but if they do, please be mindful just to use it for what they've asked you to use it for. If you have questions that crop up during the talk, just make a note of them. And after the talk, if you still want to ask them, then please contact the speakers and ask if they're happy for you to do that. Please remember what I just said, though. These are sacred offerings. Tonight is an act of worship. Subtitles are available. If you're on a PC or a laptop, you should be able to toggle them on and off at the bottom of the screen. So if you try that while I'm talking, rather than when we've moved on to the speakers, that would be good. The subtitles are live and automatic. So if you're horrified by something that comes up in the subtitles, work on the basis that the speaker probably didn't say it. If you have any problems with the uh, subtitles, let one of the panel know after the evening is over. They do tend to clarify themselves once we put the, the recording on YouTube. An hour is a long time to sit still, so you have our absolute blessing to turn your cameras off whenever you feel you'd like to, including just keeping it off for the whole evening if that's what you prefer. If you get up for a stretch or anything else, please do turn your camera off at that point. You'd be surprised what we can see when you can only see the speaker. After the talk finishes, there'll be a five minute break just for everyone to make themselves comfortable. And then we'll gather again to join in smaller groups to have some guided discussion on what's come up in the talks. Not everybody likes breakout groups and I know some people need to leave anyway. So you do have our blessing to leave at that point if you feel that you don't wish to join us for those talks. The groups aren't monitored or recorded, but we know that you'll be respectful and compassionate with one another. 
if at any point this week you would like a pastoral discussion with a Unitarian minister about something which comes up in these talks, then you're invited to contact myself or Reverend Michael Allard at any time between the session ending and 9.45 that night. Both of us have our tea after the session, so, you know, it may take us two minutes to get back to you. You did get our contact details with your invitation, but we will be keeping an eye on our email address, email inboxes and our Facebook Messenger apps. Do bear in mind that this is for pastoral issues relating to these talks. And so that's the housekeeping. Our theme speakers this evening in alphabetical order of first names are Lizzie Kingston Harrison and Nicola Temple and they've told us this about themselves. Nicola has been a Unitarian since she first attended Hucklow Summer School as a teenager. She grew up in the Northwest and for some years was a member of Ullet Road Church in Liverpool. She now lives in rural Bedfordshire where she enjoys walking and connecting with the outdoors. Nicola is deeply curious about the world around her. In her free time she loves to read, swim and solve crossword puzzles, while in her professional life she works as an avionics systems design engineer. Nicola is currently unable to attend a congregation locally, however she engages with national Unitarian activities wherever possible. This includes volunteering as a GA youth leader, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, and being a member of hashtag blessed young adult group. Lizzie works as Congregational Connections Lead for the GA and her role is to find new ways to connect our congregations so that we can share resources, serve our communities and inspire each other. She loves building authentic and meaningful connections with people and creating spaces where ideas can be shared freely and creatively. She cares deeply about Unitarian principles and left her career in teaching to contribute to our loving and vibrant community. Lizzie's doctoral thesis is on the 18th century Unitarian dissenter Joseph Priestley, and she has a deep respect for the radical and liberal values on which the movement is founded. Lizzie grew up in Norwich and now lives in Suffolk with her husband and daughters. The beautiful coastal countryside and the grounded and welcoming community at Framlingham Unitarian Meeting House have helped her to find a spiritual home. So now I invite you all to take just a couple of breaths to settle yourself into a spirit of sacred receptiveness and community, and I will pass you over to Lizzie and Nicola. Good evening. Um, it's a privilege to be up here tonight, and Lizzie and I just wanted to say thank you to the panel and to all of you for having us um, and thank you very much Kate for your warm words of welcome and it's a welcome that Lizzie and I would like to extend to you all whoever and wherever you are you're welcome here with us tonight in a moment we are going to open our talk with a chalice lighting that reminds us of our loving joyful and sometimes challenging responsibility to sit in right relationship with those who are not able to be in the room. After the chalice lighting, please join us in a short time of gathering and reflection as we play some opening music, which is a traditional Hungarian house blessing sung by the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore and an open-hearted celebration of true hospitality.
we light this chalice for the people who are not in the room. May our circle of light fall upon those on the margins, the vulnerable and forgotten, those trapped at home by illness and age, those who feel judged, excluded, ashamed, in pain. May our warmth hold those with precarious lives, carers and struggling parents, those juggling work, life and bills, the exhausted, the burnt out, anyone who's just trying to get through the day. May our flame inspire those who share our principles and feel they carry the grief of the world alone. May they find us and may we be stronger together. May we go out and walk beside those who are not in the room. May we do this sacred work with open arms. May we break down the walls and hold all in our expansive and loving embrace.
Good evening, everyone. It is our pleasure, as Nicola said, to be here tonight. And it's an honour as well to follow on from Jane and from Sarah's inspiring and loving talk last night. Tonight, we will build on their exploration of what it means to be in right relationship with others by inviting you to reflect on what it means to have a spiritually healthy relationship with the people who are not in the room. This includes people who are unable to attend our services. Those who are unable to access what we have to offer for all sorts of emotional or practical reasons, and even those who do not want or need to be with us. So yes, this theme is inherently and rather gloriously paradoxical. And it's been a blessing for Nicola and I to explore it together. It's challenging, it's illuminating, and it is at its heart an expansively loving invitation to hospitality in its truest, deepest sense. Nicola and I feel that it is a good spiritual practice wherever you are, wherever you happen to be doing, wherever you happen to be, ask yourself, look around, who isn't here and why? And is this something that we need to do something about? Is this an issue of access, both in terms of physical adaptions that you could make to your space to ensure it's accessible, or in terms of psychological barriers? Is this about identity? Does everyone feel included and truly welcome here without judgment? Is this about communication? Do people know our principles and how we might differ from other religious spaces? And ultimately, this is about cultivating an attitude of love and curiosity. And what a great antidote that is to fear of the unknown and of the other. As Jane said last night, we have an ethical responsibility to question the status quo. We don't need to accept things as they are or assume that this is the only way of doing things. So we'd love it if you leave our talk tonight driven to ask the question, who isn't here and why, about your own chapel or meeting house? And you leave feeling empowered to do so in conversation with others in your congregation. Some of those people who are not in the room need to be with us. And we have gifts to share with them. We have a place at our table for them. But just as importantly, we need them too. Their gifts and their love and their joy and their creativity and their brokenness and their challenges. We need them. The US Lutheran trained minister, Nadia Bowles-Weber, in her blazing book, Cranky Beautiful Faith, tells, of, tells us of her attempt to come into the Unitarian room. I wanted to be a Unitarian so badly, she writes. Unitarians are such smart, good people. They vote Democrats and they recycle and they love women and they let you believe whatever you want to. She says she couldn't pull it off. 
because she needed a specific external source of divine love and reconciliation, grace, that she eventually found elsewhere. And fair enough, clearly some people are not in the room because the theology doesn't sit right. And part of being in right relationship in some cases is to acknowledge that we cannot serve everyone and that we won't be right for everyone. But she gave it a go and she found out about who we are. But something about her words pulls me in because she's talking about grace. And because I do think in a broader sense than perhaps she means, we can offer grace. The grace that we can offer is not the washing away of our flaws, our vulnerabilities, our mistakes, our failings and our shame. But it is the acceptance of them. The acceptance of ourselves and each other as fully human and the healing that comes from that. And Nicola and I have based our talk around this idea that at the heart of a good relationship is the empathic act of hearing, seeing, and meeting someone on their own terms. And that this dynamic act invites love in. It is the I, thou. It is the this too is me that we heard about yesterday. It's that unifying moment and it's an opportunity for change, growth and healing. So what does it look like to be in right relationship with someone else? Um, we don't have all the answers, uh, but here is a photo of Nicola and me on the day that we met properly for the first time. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, we're in the Unitarian Meeting House in Bury St Edmunds. Perhaps you recognised it. When we volunteered to explore this theme, we decided we wanted to meet in person and see what emerged from our conversations. So we had a great day out in Bury. Neither of us lived there. Um, and we realised that in our own small way, we'd connected authentically. We'd seen that spark of divinity that is in us all. And we'd established a right relationship. And we've managed to maintain that despite having slightly different approaches to uh, the idea of a deadline. So that's good. <laughs> um, one of the first things we did in Barry St Edmunds is we listened properly to each other's stories, our journeys into Unitarianism. For Nicola, this included being honest about how hard it felt to move from a place with a thriving congregation to a place that does not. And for me, this meant acknowledging that the anger and hurt I felt when I think back over my times trying to attend other types of church. We said at this time that that kind of listening is a kind of grace as defined above. We allowed each other to be as authentic as we felt we could having just met. And we imagined a church that can replicate this sense of safety and being seen. And we noted just how many people are in urgent need of this. Because too many people are not just outside our room, they're outside lots of rooms. 
and they are excluded because of difficult power differentials that are in our society that should not be there. And we can provide a room for people. And in doing so, perhaps we can open up other spaces for them too. Nicola and I enjoyed sharing our differences too. We talked about generational differences um, and the differences of opinion, different ways of understanding the world, uh, that we didn't feel we needed to adapt our opinions or hide those to fit in with each other. Um, we talked about millennial stereotypes and the stereotypes of Generation Z. Turns out my side parting and my skinny jeans and my overuse of emojis because I was born in the 80s as well. <laughs> um, that's not from Nicola, that's just a set of stereotypes, I promise. Um, we imagined a church that is confident enough to meet people where they are and adapt to their needs but without conforming to the pattern of the world. A church that can stick to its own principles, but can meet people where they are. From a day out came new ways of thinking. We've learned from each other. I've changed. I've learned things from Nicola. I really have. Thank you, Nicola. And we used our energy from that meeting to write this talk. And just to be really clear, this wasn't some intense therapeutic encounter, but that is the point. This is the stuff of the everyday. We were just two ordinary people having a cup of tea in right relationship. And if we can do it with our friends and people we've just met over a scone in Bury St Edmunds, then we can do it with people in our congregations and the people who are outside of the room. And yes, we have to work. And of course, it will go wrong sometimes. But it's sacred work and it's a firm foundation. And so alongside our invitation for you to ask and keep on asking the question, who is not in the room? Nicola and I have three suggestions that might help you establish a right relationship with those people. First, we suggest that it is an act of grace to congruently and lovingly relate to someone as they are without imposing our judgments or our own needs. This is hard, but it is the heart of right relationship. And if you create a space where this habitually happens, we will draw in new people and we will keep them there. They will know that this is a space of healing. The mindfulness teacher Tara Brack calls this radical acceptance. It begins with the people in the room and it radiates outwards. Brene Brown, on her work on shame and vulnerability, says the same. She suggests that re-engaging people with institutions like churches means first establishing spiritually healthy relationships with each other as a way of opening up space, spaces that people want to come to. This talk is not directly about church growth, but if we build our rooms like this, they become places for everyone and new people will become part of our community. Secondly, we suggest that not everyone should be met in the room as it exists now. While there are some people we need to invite in to say, here is our table, sit with us. There are other people who need us to redefine the room. They need us to go out 
They need us to walk alongside them and to meet them where they are. And finally, we suggest that both of those above suggestions necessitate growth and change and new ways of reaching out to people and that this is healthy for us all. But we emphasise that this is not the same as foregoing our principles or losing our unique voice in order to conform to wider culture. In fact, the opposite is likely to be true. In a context where neoliberal values, materialism, capitalism and disregard for the planet are commonplace, there's never been a better time to come alive to our principles and to share them and live them in new ways. So in recognition of the uh, rather contradictory and amorphous nature of the theme, we've tried to ground our talk in personal experience and reflection. We're being honest and authentic about our stories. And we, of course, hope that means we sit in right relationship with you. And because of this, we haven't tried to speak for other people. So this isn't um, like a list or an overview of all the types of people who might not be in your congregation and what you can do about it, because only you can do that work. But it is a personal reflection on the barriers that some people who may be a bit like us might face. And we focused on generational difference. Um, I'm no scientist. So I've never in my life backed up a point I've made with data. This is my first attempt. So Nicola is unusual uh, for her generation. Um, according to the 36th British Social Attitudes Survey, which was carried out by the National Centre for Social Research in 2018, religious affiliation has the half-life of a generation. The half-life. We might bristle at the comparison of faith with radioactive waste, but it is a neat way to describe the significant decline in religious belief in Britain. Secularization in Britain is generational. Individuals are not giving up their religion. We're losing those with religious belief and we're replacing them with people who have none. 52% of people surveyed in 2018 had no religious affiliation. 66% of people never attended any kind of service apart from social occasions like weddings. 21% said they had no confidence in churches or any religious institution. Only 36% of people aged 18 to 34 have a religion, 29% attend religious services, and 33% believe in God. So Nicola is surrounded by people of her age who do not go to church, and her story tells us the reasons why she does. Thank you, Lizzie. So I'm now going to tell you a bit about who I am and talking about my story, how I became a Unitarian, and what I perceive to be some of the barriers to faith engagement that people face. So in a purely prosaic sense, who am I and why am I here? My story begins in Chester, where I was born in 1997. 
I'm 25 years old and that puts me right at the oldest end of the Generation Z age bracket. I was brought up in a stereotypically middle-class family and exploration of the world around me was strongly encouraged and supported by my parents throughout my childhood and my teenage years. I was raised in the Church of England and my parents are still very actively involved in the city centre Anglican Parish Church that we attended as a family. As with many churches across different denominations, the congregation at this church in the early 2000s was ageing, with most regular attenders above retirement age and only a couple of families with children under 18. And as a result, I've never found it unusual to be the youngest person in the room, and often by quite some decades. My introduction to Unitarianism came from my grandmother, who has been a member of Bays Hill Ch Chapel in Cheltenham for much of my lifetime. And when I was 15, Granny brought me along to summer school for the first time. And well, here I am today. The experiences of Unitarianism that I had as a teenager through attending occasional services with my granny and of course return trips to summer school made a lasting impression. Although I was, and to an extent still am, actively involved with the Church of England and maintain a Christocentric personal theology, Unitarianism taught me to question and challenge established ideas and to broaden my outlook beyond the cosy middle-class existence of my childhood. Upon finishing school at the age of 18, I attained a place at the University of Liverpool uh, to study avionic systems engineering. And as is the case for many young people leaving home, university offered me new levels of freedom and the opportunity to gain new insights and experiences. I loved living in Liverpool, making new friends and exercising my newfound independence, and even occasionally doing a little bit of studying. But what I personally valued most was the opportunity to strike out on my own faith journey and step away from what to my teenage self felt like a, a tired and out of touch and sometimes stifling Anglican tradition. I became a member of Ollett Road Unitarian Church in Liverpool and I embraced as many Unitarian activities and opportunities as I could find. However, as with all good things, my halcyon days at university came to an end, and three years ago I moved away from Liverpool and the congregation at Tollett Road Church, which had become something of a family to me. And I now live in rural Bedfordshire. I have a job as an RF systems engineer, and I attend the local Anglican church, and I'll tell you a bit more about why I do that later. So hopefully the brief summary of my background explains this about how I've come to be in the Unitarian room and how I've sort of landed here in front of you today. As I've just alluded to, I don't currently attend a regular, I don't currently regularly attend a local Unitarian congregation. And this is because there quite simply aren't any local congregations in my area. There's no congregation that's less than an hour's travel from me. And as such, I go to the village church, um, the village Anglican church, most Sundays. And 
on, um, alongside that, I maintain as much long-distance involvement with the Unitarians as I can. So this includes being an associate member of the GA and subscribing to the Inquirer, voluntary roles with summer school and the GA youth programme, and also remote membership of Hashtag Blessed, which is a young adult group mainly based in Gethionan Chapel in South Wales. As you may have gathered, my faith is important to me, and it's deeply personal. In yesterday's talk, Jane mentioned the concept of establishing a right relationship with God, or that which is of ultimate worth. And for me, a relationship with God underpins my faith and my continued church and chapel attendance. I have grown up in an environment where religious observance and spiritual practices are a regular part of my weekly routine. Attending church or chapel services gives me time and space in my week to reflect, to take stock, and to leave worries and anxieties behind at the door. It gives me spiritual nourishment and a breathing space away from the incredibly busy and sometimes chaotic rhythms of everyday life. For me, spiritual practices are tools that I use to help me navigate my way through life. And church communities should provide a safe and supportive space in which to practice one's beliefs. Another reason that I like to engage in church or chapel community is for the social aspect. I have so many varied and deep friendships that have come through church connections. Through church life, I've met people of many different backgrounds, ages, nationalities, outlooks. This makes for deep and rich relationships, and it broadens my own outlook and understanding of the world. As well as all of this, chapel communities can give strong natural platform for social action projects. This is something that I've particularly experienced through my participation in Hashtag Blessed. As a chapel youth group, we focus on local community action projects that are normally small enough to be achievable, ambitious enough to give us a sense of purpose, and worthwhile enough to have a notable impact on the local community and it is hugely rewarding to feel able to make a difference and give something back. So why do I think that people particularly of my generation aren't in the room? Having just listed all the reasons why chapel works for me, the question naturally arises, why aren't there more people attending chapels or churches or generally engaging with religious congregations? And I'm sometimes asked, as a young person, what do you think we need to do to get more young people involved? Now, there's an irony in asking the one person who is actually already in the room and attending about the general mindset of the large group of people that don't attend. And sometimes that irony seems to get a bit lost. The honest answer is that I'm already here and I don't really know, I couldn't possibly presume to talk for the people who aren't 
already in the room. But there are a few questions to consider when looking at the lack of attendance in particular age groups. First of all, is this gen genuinely a behaviour correlated to age, or are there other societal factors at play? And is this trend seen across all cultures, or is this just appearing in communities in the UK? Where it is age-related, is this a behaviour that is going to continue throughout the lifespan of, of the generation in question? Or will people age out of or age into certain beliefs as they get older? And how far is the decline that Lizzie mentioned that we're currently seeing just the most recent section of a long-term trend that has been developing over the last several generations, indeed over the last couple of centuries? So I can't begin to give a detailed analysis of all of these questions in the time that we have tonight. But it's clear that there are complex and multifaceted factors at play that means that there isn't just going to be a simple magic solution to the perceived problem of congregational um, decline. So yes, church attendance is on the decline. And yes, younger people are less likely to attend church than in previous generations. And yes, this has been the case for the last couple of centuries. So we have established what we perceive to be the problem. And we have established that there is not going to be an easy solution. So perhaps it is time to stop shaping this as a problem and instead start to view it as an opportunity. We know that people aren't attending and we can hazard guesses as to why. Children are not being brought up to go to church. Viewing religion as irrelevant in a world in which science explains everything. Perhaps, like me, a lack of local congregations plays a part. Or even it might just be that it's not cool anymore. So the real questions we need to ask are for the people that do engage in church communities. How do they engage? Why do they engage? And what do they look for if they're looking to join a new congregation? By offering spaces for the people who do already come and leaving our doors open to welcome in the newcomers and the tentative seekers, we are already making a small step in the right direction. So with all this in mind, what motivates people to get involved? Firstly, it's important to acknowledge that every individual who comes to, their, to our doors has their own reason for entering and brings their own life experiences and their own skills and capabilities. Any balanced relationship involves an ebb and flow of giving and taking. Everyone who comes to our communities has things that they seek to gain and things that they wish to give. Things that they seek to gain and things that they wish to give. 
So examples of things that people may be seeking from a chapel community include spiritual connection and possibly a relationship with God or a divine being. Community connection and a social or support network. And some sense of knowledge or understanding, by which I mean possible answers to some of the big moral and social and spiritual questions that we face. At the same time, people often feel more satisfaction and fulfilment if they perceive that they add value and that they can give something back to their community. So this can, of course, be material or financial, but more probably in a church context, this would involve an offering of time and skills that can be seen to make a difference. Having considered this give and take, the next thing to remember is that everyone has their own limits and expectations. It is important in any relationship to recognise the balance between giving and taking, and also to realise that a healthy balance will lie in a different place for each of us. So I'd like to invite you now to just join me in imagining a purely hypothetical chapel community. So. It's difficult to say how big this community is, um, however it contains a wide demographic of members and it will often get visitors coming in to join services or other chapel activities. In this hypothetical community, the chapel maybe holds one Sunday every week, one Sunday service every week, and it occasionally hosts community events such as fates or concerts or coffee mornings. So within this community, let's look at some of the, the, the possible members that might, might attend. So one member of the congregation might turn up at roughly one service a month. And this person considers it to be a huge achievement. They have to work their attendance at church around two jobs and looking after a sick relative. But they value their time at the services for the respite and the spiritual engagement they find there. There might be another member of the church or chapel who is always there at every service and chapel event. They find spiritual fulfillment in the services and their life centres around the chapel and community activities that involve the regular congregation. But perhaps this person, for all they're seen as a pillar of the church community, they might be quite shy to engage in wider communities, local events that are going on. And then there might be a third member of this chapel community who might only have a sporadic attendance at Sunday services but they will always turn up to support any wider community events and they are keen to facilitate and engage in wider community involvement. So having painted that little picture, the question I'd now like to ask is, 
do we consider each of these people equally valid members of our chapel community? There are some people for whom chapel begins and ends with Sunday service. And there are some for whom chapel means less about services and more about the community interactions. I would suggest that any of these approaches and all of the ones in between are equally valid. Each member of our community brings what they are able and wish to contribute. And they should also be able to find the nourishment that meets their individual needs. And as such, chapel participation can come in various, in many forms and guises. So congregational development should first focus on the individual needs of the people who are present in all their different forms, and then use this as a foundation from which to look further afield into the wider community. If we want to explore our relationships with the people just outside the room, we perhaps need to define where the walls of the room are and think about whether we can push the walls of our room out to include the people with whom we maybe only have a tangential connection. So we now come to a time for some quiet reflection with music by Reverend Elizabeth Harley called Clouds.
So in a moment, I'm going to hand back over to Lizzie to hear about her story. But first, I wanted to share a little bit more of the, the contextual data um, surrounding particularly her generation's attitude to religion. So in the 35 to 54 year old age group, the data is only slightly higher than that of the younger generation. 43% of millennials identify as having a religion. 32 attend religious services and 40 believe in God. There is, however, evidence that these numbers don't reveal the full picture. For all, religious identity is certainly on the decline. There is evidence that changes in regular church attendance are not happening nearly as fast or as much as the top level data would suggest. It appears that people are simply no longer identifying as cultural Christians. In other words, there are fewer people identifying as Christians who don't actually practice. So this means that of the people who do now identify as Christians, they are much more likely to be attending regularly and participating in church services and activities. So overall, this means that while there are certainly fewer people who now identify as religious, the ones who do are more likely to be committed. It also means that while overall church attendance might not be going undergoing the drastic de decline that we initially feared, the attitudes of our wider society towards religion in general and Christian denominations in particular has undergone a seismic shift in the years following the Second World War. So without further ado, I will now hand you over to Lizzie to hear about her story. Oh, thank you so much, Nicola, for sharing your story um, and backing it up with some data as well. So we've both done that now. Um, so, yeah, so similar, similarly, I'm going to tell my story um, and attempt to situate that in a kind of generational uh, context. Who even knows what generation exactly I am? I was born on the cusp. I'm the oldest millennial you can imagine because uh, I turned 18 four months into the year 2000. Um, I was born in Norwich and I have also lived in York, in Brighton, in Ipswich, in Bury St Edmunds, and every single one of those places has a really visible Unitarian congregation. I had no idea. I thought that everywhere did. I thought that Unitarians were literally everywhere um, because everywhere that I had been, I would see a, a glorious Unitarian meeting house. Um, I didn't go into any of them, um, but that was because it wasn't the right time for me. I did know about them and what they were doing. Uh, Nicola talked about breaking with traditions um, and picking up others, uh, but growing up in a non-religious family, I had no reference point for religion at all. I had no reason to engage with faith of any kind, Christian or not. Most of my friends had no religion. No one in my wider family went to church. And I had literally been to church like two or three times by the time I left home. It was when Nicola and I looked at the data that I realised how unusual I am. I had no idea. Um, not simply in ha now having religious beliefs and belonging to a faith group, but also because while children brought up with a religion often give it up mm -hmm. in adulthood, children brought up without one tends to stay without one. But I felt a divine call. 
that's the only way to describe it. It was a call from nothing, from within, from outside. I had no language available to me to describe what I felt. And so my Unitarian story is a story of change in me. And it's a story of finding a vocabulary to express what I was experiencing. I took an alpha course when I was 20. And nothing I'm going to say is about alpha courses in general. It's about this specific alpha course. Um, I only had a vague idea of what the word sin meant. I didn't really understand it, but I soon found out from the alpha course. Um, I found out that the relationship I was in very much qualified. Um, I then found out and I was horrified by the idea, um, and it might be an idea that you grew up with. Um, I'd never heard it. The idea that someone else had died as a substitute for our sin. I didn't know there were other theological options at that point. And I was furious when I found out that women were not allowed leadership positions in the church I'd started attending. So I left. My initiation into, Christ into Christianity uh, didn't traumatize me because I left very quickly, but actually I can really understand why it might. I really get that. And that's not to say that it didn't do me harm. I started questioning whether actually my relationship was sinful. And it harmed me because it put me off going to church for another 20 years. And in that sense, it damaged my relationship with God. And now I had a really good reason, didn't I, not to be in the room. Luckily, at the same time, I was going on the Alpha course, I discovered by chance the writing of the 18th century radical rational dissenters and the contrast between these liberal minded, sophisticated, nuanced thinkers was just enough to keep me going. In fact, I was so angry after my Alpha course and church experience that I did a PhD on Joseph Priestley, our radical forebear. And in 2018, I finally felt able to walk into Framlingham Unitarian Meeting House. And if Joseph Priestley invited me in, then I stayed. I stayed for the compassionate, liberal, free-thinking, loving, creedless, that's crucial to keep me in the room, and radically inclusive principles that I found in our movement. So here I am in the room like Nicola, and I stay here for the same reasons. For the spiritual nourishment because i'm met intellectually for the ritual old and new for the rich story of our dissenting past for the collective sense of identity and community i have never felt that i belonged anywhere the social aspect is crucial the activism is crucial but above all i have connection i have meaning and purpose which is a kind of faith and I'm being met and seen and accepted. And that's a kind of grace. And I'm not the isolated person I used to be. And that sense of wholeness is salvation. But why are so few of my peers in the room and how do we invite them in? 
I'm not going to speak for my generation, as we've just established, apart from my hair and emoji use. Um, I'm clearly not representing millennials. Um, I think that's a bit of both. Is it age? Is it circumstance? Four things. I got these from talking to my friends. Why aren't they there? I keep telling them about Unitarianism. Why aren't they there? One, they've got no need for religion. They think it's irrelevant. They don't understand Unitarianism. Uh, we could say that people lack the spiritual literacy to, to know what they're missing. But something about framing it like that imposes a judgment, implies a superiority on our parts. And part of being in right relationship is just to accept that they know about Unitarianism because I keep telling them, um, but they still feel it's not right for them. Perhaps equally importantly are life circumstances, in particular caring responsibilities. Lots of my friends have small children. Our needs are not very well met um, by Sunday services. We want to use our time differently. We want to be together with people. We want it on our terms. Um, we're very, very time poor. We're juggling a lot. We're very exhausted. We want to use our precious time in a way that feels important to us. And finally, because a lot of my peers that I have spoken to are wedded to the idea that religion is about belief. It's hard to explain that our faith can be about participation, about experience of our community and not a creed or a set of ideas. But what's working well? What's keeping me here? Well, I get a huge amount from Sunday services, um, both at Framlingham and the UCA services online. Um, but every time I attend a service, my husband is looking after my children. Not everyone has that support. People with caring responsibilities can only be in the room if someone else is doing the caring. Or if that group is made accessible to those who they care for. It's that simple. Our evening meditation group is now online since the pandemic and now it's accessible to me because I can do bedtime and show up to the group and I couldn't before. This is a small group of the type that Jane mentioned last night. It is where I am met. It is my safe space. It's where I'm in right relationship and it's spiritually nourishing. All of those evening groups work better for me because of my caring responsibilities, um, except when they clash with my children's bedtime. I very rarely show up to things that happen at bedtime. That's why I'm so grateful when things are recorded, when there are flexible timings, when there are groups you can dip in and out of. I started a meditation group called Permission to Rest, where after you've dropped your children at school, you can walk to the meeting house and meditate together. In the holidays, we bring our children. It's popular because it fits around the routine of lots and lots of other people that I know, and because they can walk with me, and it's suddenly our meeting house, it's filled with other people who have a life like mine. I love it as well, there are ways of absorbing our content online, so I don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. Love Facebook, I'm definitely showing my age. I like TikTok, maybe I'm not. I love discussion forums. Social media is a way of creating a new room. It's been absolutely critical for me. So my story is a change, or a story of change, of growth, of healing. As Bell Hooks writes in All About Love, 
She says healing is an act of communion. She said it's a neoliberal lie of the rugged individualist who doesn't need to rely on anyone else. We're meant to do this together in communion with parts of ourselves, with God and with each other. Nicola and I have told you two stories about change. And here is the third one by Margaret Silf and read by Nicola. Thank you, Lizzie. Um, so as Lizzie said, I've got a story now um, from this book called um, 100 More Wisdom Stories by Margaret Silf. It's a fantastic book if you've not heard of it. Um, and it's a story called Stepping Stones. The woman of the woods, as she was known by the folks who lived nearby, had lived since time immemorial in her cosy little cottage by the river. No one rightly knew how old she was or when she had first come to live by the riverside. Everyone got on well with her and respected her age and her wisdom. But she herself had a restless soul. She knew, perhaps she had always known, that there was something important she had still to discover. The more she pondered this mystery, the more she realised that she must follow the direction in which her soul was drawing her, wherever it might lead. And the more she pondered this beckoning, the more she realised it was drawing her to the other side of the river. The river was wide. It was deep. It was turbulent. You couldn't wade across it. You couldn't swim across it. There was no bridge across it. Yet everything in her heart convinced her that she must cross it. That whatever it was that her heart most desired lay on the other side. So the day dawned when she went down to the water's edge and put her mind to the problem of how to cross. As she stood there, a young man came up beside her. In his arms, he carried a big stone and he set it down in the river at her feet, inviting her to use it as a stepping stone. Trusting him entirely, she did so. And there she stood all day, perched on her stepping stone. The next day he came again, and the next, and the next, each time bringing another stepping stone, until, after a while, she had already walked halfway out into the river. But then one morning he didn't come. With a rising sense of panic, she looked around to see what had happened to him. He was a bit late that morning. And it was then that she saw, for the first time, where he had been getting those stepping stones. He was systematically deconstructing her cosy little cottage on the riverbank to create the means for her to cross the river. To embrace her future, she realised that she had to relinquish the securities of her past. 
and yet the past that she had so cherished was essential to making the pathway to the future. And so it happened that when she had come to terms with her loss, she was able to allow it to become the gateway to a new possibility. That story was called Stepping Stones by Margaret Silf. And it brings us back to our three suggestions offered by Lizzie in the introduction. Uh, by way of a conclusion, I'll tell you about some group body work I recently took part in, slightly out of my comfort zone, um, but very, very worthwhile. The, the bodywork embodied our individual relationship with the divine and our connections with each other because first we reached up as far as we could go. We stretched our arms to the sky. We were vulnerable and alone in a transcendent moment of connection with our own conception of the divine. And then, then we threw our arms out widely to embrace others, to acknowledge our mutual need for healing and communion and our mutual interdependence. I don't have the baggage of the cross. I don't carry any heaps of childhood symbols and associations, but that reimagining of the cross was deeply moving to me. Sometimes bringing people into our room is about creating spiritually healthy places, relationships with ourselves, the divine, each other, and then drawing others close. We do that work first, we go up first, and then we go out, and we draw people into our embrace. And when you truly hold someone, you open your arms and you invite them into your space. You include them and you accept them. This is like the platinum rule that Sarah and Jane mentioned yesterday. It's the unity of right relationship in a spiritual sense, that ultimate recognition that we are not separate, that we all share this place at the table. Things that are doing this well, spaces that are bringing in people from outside are our meditation circles, are our covenant groups, heart and soul. That is where these things are happening and they're drawing people in because of the depth of that connection. But other times, other times, asking people in is actually about going out. It's about taking down the rules and creating new spaces. It's about expanding the room. If they're not in it, then let's make it bigger so that we meet people where they are and we ask them what they need and we give them what they need. Every Thursday in Framlingham, Unitarian Meeting House, from October to March this year, anybody can come in because we will be heating it. It will be open and it will be warm because that's what people need. Other ways I think we're expanding the room, I think this, I think Zoom gatherings, I think certain social events, I think um, gardening projects and baby groups and 
meditation for mums after the school run, all of the ways that Nicola imagined doing church are equally important in this kind of non-hierarchical way. Um, it's why Nicola and I called it Weirdly Connected Blobs, which was our subtitle for this talk that never made it. Because instead of a hierarchy with the Sunday service at the top, we just have connected activities that meet different sets of needs. And finally, you've heard us say we're in the room. And we found ourselves in the room because other people have connected us and they've embraced us. And we're both so grateful for that. So thank you to everyone here who has found a way to work online, to work with social media, has set up a hybrid service that has driven them mad, that started groups that fit around our jobs and our families and our responsibilities, to everyone who's let go of things that didn't work and reimagined our Unitarian traditions and rituals in a way that does. We're here because Unitarians from older generations have encouraged us and met us. They've walked with us, they've invited us in, they've trusted us, they've heard our voices, and we are blessed to be in the room. And we know that now we could be part of that sacred work to open up the room for other people. Our closing benediction is called A Prayer for This Church by the Reverend Nancy Schaffer. May each one among us have skin that longs to touch other skin, fingertips that long for other fingertips, or whole hands and even arms, bodies that want to stand next to other bodies, not alone, while singing and bending, stirring soup. May ones whose skin doesn't cry out for other skin wish it did, and so teach it, so that no one stands alone, and no one aches and does not say so. May our doors be so open that it's drafty inside, and people sometimes shout because noises without come also within. May those sheltered here sometimes cry all at once, letting tear water clean what words by themselves cannot. In silent times, may everyone present here, everyone else breathing, and know this is not separate from how the world breathes all night. May we also, may we always have enough room for those who may want to come in. May those who cherish this church be so glad that they cannot stop speaking, stop asking, and may that crowding itself be a gladness as we keep adding rooms. May we notice each one who is new and invite her to stay. May our list of names for the holy not ever be finished. And may we hear God chuckling with us as we find still more.
thank you both. That was nourishing, encouraging, and speaking for myself, it was all the things I needed to hear. So thank you so much. Now we all have a lot to think about and a lot to process. So I invite you to pop off for that, all of you, not just Nicola and Lizzie, to pop off for five minutes to put the kettle on, do what you need to do, and then to join us back here so that we can put you into small groups for a 20 minute chat about some of the issues that Lizzie and Nicola have raised for us. There will be prompt questions for those chats to help it along. Just to remind you, those chats will not be recorded and they won't be monitored, although panel members might be bobbing in and out just to see how you're getting on. After the chats, we'll bring you back in here just so that we can say goodnight. I know that a lot of you are unable to stay for those chats, so if you are leaving us at this point, you go with our blessing. I hope that you have a lovely evening and we look forward to seeing you later in the week for some or all of the rest of the talks. Tomorrow we're welcoming Arik Malecki and Laura Dobson. So on behalf of those who might be leaving, I thank you again, Nicola and Lizzie, and take five minutes and then pop back in here and we will join in those smaller groups. Thank you.